Lord, please make the words of my mouth and the thoughts that we all have in and around those to be acceptable in your sight. Lead us into truth. Help us to be able to discern spirits between truth and error. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I love to eat. I don't know. I think it's a skank thing. Um, if you look at half of my relatives, half of them are probably about as wide as they are tall. And I haven't gone that way yet, although there's still plenty of time. Um, but I, I love to eat. In fact, I even plan my vacations kind of around restaurants and things like that. Uh, if I'm going south, I like to be in Lexington about noon so that I can go either to this takeout Cajun restaurant or this place called Rafferty's has the best backyard barbecue burger with Canadian bacon and, oh, it's wonderful. And then I like to be in Atlanta around supper time where there's this place called Mix that has, again, the best gourmet burger I think I've ever tasted. And so you can imagine how kind of unpleasant it was for me to study for three years in England. The England are, England, English people are known for a lot of good things. They're very smart, very witty, very snobby. They're, they're very good at many things. Um, but one of the things that English people probably aren't that good at is cooking, at least not to my taste. In fact, there's a joke I won't tell you about who cooks in heaven and who cooks in hell. And you might, you might guess how the joke ends up. Um, but anyway, uh, I spend about three years in England, and burgers, you know, just lamb was what they liked. Sliced lamb with this green mint sauce. Just didn't quite gel with me. Um, but then my friends one day said, hey, there's this American restaurant, Ken. We can go to this American restaurant, like Chi-Chi's is Mexican, right? And so <laughs> we, we go to this this lovely American restaurant, and I order a, a hamburger. Oh, and here it comes, and it looks, it looks beautiful. Uh, and I bite into it, and I don't know how you can mess up a hamburger. I mean, I can cook hamburgers in a skillet, and it, and it tastes okay. Um, and, and now I find out I may get mad cow, mad cow disease in about 10 years. I don't know if you heard about that, but then, anyway. But um, <clears throat> the, their hamburgers were so good that I would actually walk three miles just to get a Big Mac at McDonald's. That's pretty desperate. And it was, it was uphill both ways. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> America doesn't have that problem uh, as far as food is concerned. You can have any food, basically, that you want in America. We have two lovely restaurants here in town, Ryan's and uh, a Sirloin Steakhouse, where basically if you want to gorge yourself, hey, the sky's the limit. Uh, I, don't, I don't know whether they put a time, time on you, like after three hours you have to leave or, or whatever, but you can just pretty much stay there a long time and just eat and eat and eat and eat and eat. Um, we're kind of a smorgasbord culture, American. The more the better. If, if one is good, then a hundred uh, is better. And in a way, we have a kind of smorgasbord of spiritual things going on in America right now. There are a lot of great spiritual resources available to us um, in America today. We have Christian bookstores in every city. And those Christian bookstores have all kinds of books uh, that you can read to help you um, along in your faith. We have, we have study books on the Bible. We have study Bibles. I mean, how many study Bibles? I, I don't know whether I could count how many different kinds of study Bibles uh, that you can get. We have commentaries on books of the Bible. We have lots of practical books about how to, how to live from day to day. Lots of resources like that. We have television broadcasts and radio um, uh, stuff on, on Christianity. Uh, Sunday morning, you can just uh, sit there for hours and hours just listening to preacher after preacher after preacher. There are even online churches now. 
You can actually have a worship service online uh, if you want to. And of course, there are all kinds of online resources available for you um, as a Christian that you can tap into. And not only that, but we have more historical information now about the things going on at the time that, the, that uh, Christ and the early disciples were, were, were um, writing the Bible and, and uh, uh, converting the first Christians. We have more information now so that we can hone in on what they were talking about in the Bible than we've had probably for almost 2,000 years. Uh, we, we probably know more about what was going on in, in the places uh, in Bible times than they did maybe 100 years after, uh, after they were written. But it's the best of times, and in a way, it's also the worst of times. There are more voices out there that can lead you astray in that smorgasbord uh, of theology that's out there today. Um, there are poisons on the smorgasbord as well. And you can't always tell what's the difference between the good stuff and the bad stuff. It can be very subtle sometimes. Now, this necessarily isn't that subtle, but I uh, did a little research on the web in preparation and came up with a couple of, of websites. I'd like to read to you uh, from a couple websites I found out there. Here's one. Successful Bible Christianity means you must turn from your life of sin and selfishness to serve Jesus. Successful Bible Christianity means you must beware, because Bible Christianity stands against drugs, drunkenness, homosexuality and lesbianism, porn, contact with spirits, New Age, Ouija boards, Satanism. Successful Christianity means be ready. I believe Jesus is coming back soon. Now that's pretty good. I think we'd all agree with that that was on the website. Here are some other things that were on that website. Successful Bible Christianity means you must read the King James Bible. All other Bible perversions, especially the modern ones, are based on wickedly corrupt manuscripts and are part of a deliberate conspiracy to weaken true Bible Christianity. Successful Bible Christianity means you must join a church. The best are Baptist, Open Brethren, or Pentecostal churches. Most of the rest are a waste of time or even very dangerous. Now, you're reading along... How do you know, and, and I separated them out for you, They're, it's all merged together in the webpage. How do you know wh whether to believe this guy? I mean, maybe what he's saying is true, but how are you going to know whether to trust him or not to trust him? Here's another webpage I found out there. In the Old Testament, Hebrew, soul is a combination of both body and spirit. Therefore, when the Bible says that Jonathan loved David as his own soul and then stripped himself of his role, robe and gave it to David you can see that the men not only loved each other spiritually, but physically. Also, since people in those days did not wear underwear, by removing his robe, Jonathan would have stripped himself naked in front of David. This would be considered extremely unusual behavior, another indication that their relationship was quite possibly physical. This is a gay Christian site um, arguing from the Bible, yes, from the Bible, uh, that homosexuality is a valid lifestyle, according to the Bible. Now, most of us would have a pretty obvious reaction to stuff like that, but what about, there's other stuff that's more subtle than this. How are you going to tell which you're going to listen to? There are lots of voices out there in the smorgasbord. How are you going to tell? How do you know that what I'm saying is right? How do you know that what your pastor tells you is right? How do you know what your teachers tell you is right? Or your denomination? How do you know that what your denomination tells you is right? How will you tell the difference between what is truth and what is error? <clears throat> 1 John 4, 1 through 3. 
Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. Scripture. I think we would all agree that Scripture is the most basic and most important thing that you could use to tell the difference between truth and error. Let's say it's finals week. Boy, your, your roommate's really getting on your nerves, and you want to kill them. Scripture tells you you shouldn't do it. Don't, don't do it. Um, <clears throat> I had a man, who once, uh, a man who once claimed that God had told him to have an affair on his wife. No. I mean, Scripture is quite clear, quite obvious. God did not tell you. Uh, to have an affair on your wife. There, there are quite obvious things that Scripture tells us uh, that you shouldn't do. And when you go to, let's say you're surfing the web, and I'm not sure that I think that the web's the best place to get your theology from, but let's just say that you are. Uh, some silly professor like Skank wants you to do some paper on the Bible, and you're doing it. And you come to this web page that has some good things, but it kind of has a hate undertone to it. Like this website one of the websites I read, it kind of had a hateful spirit to it. I think that's probably a good clue that you're not looking at a good source of truth because Christ and hate really don't go together. There's no way that anyone can justify hate uh, from the Bible. In fact, First John tells us that people who hate are actually murderers in a sense. If you hate you're a murderer. Jesus says that in the Sermon on the Mount, that if you even hate your brother, you may as well have, have gone ahead and kill him. And so, if, if, if the source you're looking at has a kind of hateful attitude, that's clearly not Scripture. The problem is, a lot of the debate is about what the Bible means. And so, we haven't just solved our problem by saying, turn to the Bible and you'll know what truth is and what error is. Because, I mean, both of those websites I read to you are about the Bible. Uh, and and, and that's, that's kind of where uh, the heart of a lot of the disagreement um, is. Now, don't get me wrong, Christian tradition, and we'll talk about tradition in a second, Christian tradition agrees on what the fundamentals and the fundamental meaning of the Bible is. So, for example, things like love and, and faithfulness to your spouse. But there is kind of this, this fundamental problem uh, of understanding exactly what it means. Let me tell you a story. This is a completely made-up story. This did not happen. I've just made it up, okay? But it's about a girl named Sally. Um, Sally is born into a family that travels a lot. Um, and when Sally is born, since her mother was Roman Catholic, she decides, hey, let's get Sally baptized. And so they take Sally to the nearby Roman Catholic church where she's baptized. Now, a few, few weeks later, let's say, they move to another city where they attend a Greek Orthodox church. There they're told that, well, really, the sprinkling that the Roman Catholic church isn't the right way to do it and that the baby has to be immersed in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit three times in order for that baptism to count. So the baby is baptized again three times well, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, they grow, she grows up. They move to a different city. This time, they attend a Baptist church where, where she's told that her baptism twice as an infant doesn't count because she wasn't old enough to know what she was doing when she was baptized. So she's baptized a third time in the Baptist church. Now, a little bit later, she attends a Lutheran church where the pastor is horrified that she would be baptized more than once. And he says, with a twink, twinkle in his eye, we Lutherans have killed people for believing that. Um, and so, uh, he tells her that it's horrible that she's been baptized even twice, let alone three times. 
Finally, she ends up in a Quaker church where they tell her it really doesn't matter anyway because baptism isn't essential in the first place. Uh, and so uh, she's quite confused. Now, this is a made-up story, but it, theoretically, it's a possible story, and it's just a small picture of the incredible disagreement uh, that exists among various Christians uh, on what exactly the meaning of the Bible is. And so, you know, what are we going to do? How are we going to find out what the true meaning of Scripture is? Well, I have a suggestion, um, and I just, you know, I'm, I'm, this is probably the, the, the biggest thing I want you to think about from today. If you don't listen to anything else, listen to this one sentence and, and think about it and pray about it and talk to others about it and, and, and uh, see if you think that this is part of the reason why there's so much diversity. We do not read Scripture so that we can do what they did back then. Think, think about that for a second. The reason we read Scripture is not so we can do exactly what they did back then. Well, first of all, who are they? Sometimes we forget that there, is an, there even is a they. Uh, there is a they. Who are the they? They're the Corinthians. They're the Romans. They're the Thessalonians. They're the ancient Israelites. A lot of times when we read the Scripture, we forget that, that it actually was written to Corinthians and Thessalonians and Israelites and, and Romans and, and, and people uh, who lived 2,000 years ago and, and more. Um, we don't read the Bible so that we can do exactly what they did back then. So, for example, when I'm reading in 1 Thessalonians 5.26 where it says, Greet the brothers with a holy kiss. I'm not going to set up a committee at the door of men to start kissing men, visitors who come into my church. It's just not going to go over very well if I, if I do that. And, and so there's an example of how that we don't read that scripture so that we can then go and, and, do, and do that. Um, when we read things like that, there's something else involved. And I want to I go into this for a second. Um, there's a myth, an ancient Greek myth, about a fellow by the name of Procrustus. Maybe you've heard of it. Um, he was a, a guy who stood outside of an ancient city, and whenever somebody came along, he had this little bed, um, and he would have you lay down in his bed, and if you were too tall, he'd chop your legs off. If you didn't fit the bed enough, he'd chop your legs off, and if you were too short for the bed, he'd stretch you out so that you fit the bed. And so sometimes you could talk about somebody having a Procrustean bed, what it means is they insist that it has to measure up um, to their way. Well, I don't think that this is a picture of the character of God. I don't think that God has a Procrustean bed. I think my model of God is that he meets us where we're at, that he, he cares about me, and that when he speaks to me, he speaks to me. He speaks to me with my needs and, and my baggage and, and where I'm at. He stoops to my weakness when he speaks to me. And I can see this in the Bible. So, for example, when God required the Israelites not to eat pork, was this just a rule out in the middle of nowhere that he just, he just created out because he was trying to figure out, hmm, let's see, what are some things that I can require of them? Hey, let's not let them eat pork. I mean, is that why that is in the Old Testament? I don't think so. And although I'm not going to, you know, suggest why, I, I think there was a reason. I think that there was something relevant about God requiring them not to eat pork. And it's because of that relevancy to the Old Testament that in the New Testament, God can say, you don't have to worry about not eating pork anymore because the reason why I revealed that to Israel doesn't exist anymore. Um, he stoops to our weakness. He meets us where we're at. Have you ever read the story of Gideon? I'm, I'm, I'm very amazed at the story of Gideon um, because one of the things that God tells Gideon to do is to build an altar and to offer on it a whole burnt offering. Now, what is interesting about this is because just a few hundred years later, found in the book of Deuteronomy, God commands them not to offer burnt offerings anywhere except for in his tabernacle. 
God contradicts himself for Gideon. He stoops to Gideon's weakness. He meets Gideon where Gideon is at and tells Gideon to build an altar, something that God had told them in theory he didn't want happening. Why? Because things had gone completely messed uh, in Israel. Uh, they, they didn't even know about Deuteronomy, I don't think. I don't think Gideon even knew that God had said centuries before that they weren't to worship anywhere but in the place where um, the tabernacle. And so God commands Gideon to do something that just a few hundred years later he'd commanded all Israel not to do. That's a picture of a God who's willing to meet us where we're at. Um, we read about divorce in the Sermon on the Mount, um, and they said, hey, Moses commanded us that, that we could give um, a writ of divorce to our wife. And that's in the Bible. I mean, that's in the, the law in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There God says that it's permissible to put away your wife. But Jesus says, you know why God did that? God did that because you guys were thick-headed. He never intended it to be that way. And so, you see, God, boy, he must be a really frustrated guy a lot of the time, having to, to meet us with where we're at. We're so thick. We don't, we don't know. We, we, we're, we're kind of stupid. And he just kind of stoops down to our weakness and meets us where we're at. What, what is Scripture for, then? If Scripture isn't to tell us what to do, um, that is, so that we can do what they did, what is Scripture for? Well, Scripture tells us what God is like. People change, cultures change, the needs of people change, but God doesn't change. And what God tells a particular person in a particular situation tells us what he is like. It tells us, for example, that he's loving, that he loves Gideon, that he wants Gideon um, to, to meet him. He wants Gideon to have an experience with him. It shows, it shows God's character as we look through the Bible and we see how he reveals himself to various people. We see what God is like. And, and there's a wonderful article um, by Steve Lennox on the web you can read uh, about how we can read Scripture to, to focus on God and see what God's character is like. We can see in the Scripture that God is loving, that God is patient. Um, it, I would say, and, and again, this is for you to think about and to pray about, I would say that groups like the Amish are groups that think that they're doing what they did back then. Or, you know, the Amish are a little different from most of us here. They think that they're doing what they did, but they're a good example, I think, of what happens when you try to do what they did in ancient times. What you end up doing is you end up with this kind of hybrid, a mixture of your times and their times. The Amish aren't doing what they did back in Bible times. They're doing what the Amish did, you know, three, four hundred years ago when the Amish movement started. And I know there are some splinter groups um, off, of, off the Wesleyan Church who I think are stuck in time. And they think they're doing what people did back in Bible times, but in fact they're doing what certain groups were doing in the, in the 40s and, and 50s and 60s. We, 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 we don't end up doing what God wants us to do when we try to do what, what they did. We'll do much better if we try to see what God is like from what he did with them and then ask, okay, if God is like that today, what does he want to do with me? Think about that. So how can we tell the difference between truth and error? We're on safest ground when we read the Bible and look for what it tells us about God's character and then derive principles from that. What are the principles that God was using when he dealt with people in that way? Some of you have read Josh McDowell's, um, I believe it's right, right from Wrong, his book, where he basically has this three-level system of figuring out what to do. There is the character of God, there are the principles that flow out of that, and then there are the individual precepts that come out of those principles. What they did back then are like the precepts that flowed out of God's character back in their culture, back in their times. 
But the precepts that God wants us to do today are going to flow out differently in our setting, in our world. Like I said, God's not setting this bed where he's going to chop off our legs um, if, if we don't measure up to, to something that was appropriate, you know, 2,000 years ago. Think about it. But basically, we will be able to tell the difference between truth and error best if we read Scripture with an eye to what God is like, to what his character is like, and derive principles from that, and then apply it to our setting today. Now I want us to go on to the next part um, of, of uh, figuring out the difference between truth and error. Not unusually, time has left me, um, so I need to kind of summarize the other parts of how we can uh, discern the difference uh, between truth and error. This creed that we've just read is part of Christian tradition. And uh, tradition is the second part of figuring out the difference between truth and error. Um, this is our story. If, if that creed is not your story, then you're not really a Christian. It's not, Christianity is not a private affair. It's not an affair that just skipped 2,000 years from the Bible to, to my living room today. Um, there have been Christians for the last 2,000 years who've been who've been trying to deal with what God wanted them to do. And we can learn from them. And I can't go into detail, but, but we can learn from every tradition. Not only are there the essentials of every Christian tradition, things like we just read in, in the Creed, uh, but every branch of Christianity has something uh, that we can learn about truth. Like, uh, I just want to, and uh, this is all I'll do with tradition, um, but, but here are some things that I think I can learn from people who aren't Wesleyan. From the Catholics, I think I can learn that God is holy. Um, so, for example, um, I don't agree with this theology um, where they, they set aside priests who only can um, uh, kind of intermediate between me and God, that I have to go to confession, I have, to, I, I have a middleman between me and God. I don't, I don't agree with that theology. I don't agree the setup of, of, the, of, the, of the Catholic uh, cathedral or church where, in a sense, the, the, the priest is off somewhere changing the bread and, and wine into the body and blood of, blood of Christ. You know, I don't, I don't agree with that theology, but I'll say one thing. They, they sure understand that God is holy, that God is greater than anything human, that God is, 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 is incredible, and, and that I'm not really worthy of him. They've got that down. I think I can learn from the Lutherans the fact that I can't earn my salvation. I think I can learn from Calvinists that God rules and that he's sovereign and that he can basically do whatever he wants. I think I can learn from the Pentecostals that God is a God of power, uh, that God is still alive, that God is still moving, that God is still working, and that his spirit wants to come to me. And of course, I think that if you're not Wesleyan, you can learn from the Wesleyans that God is a God who not only is love, uh, not only does he rule, but he rules with love, and he wants to enable me to be able to love. And so tradition is the second the second kind of thing that helps me tell the difference between true and, uh, truth and error. I should talk to my minister. I shouldn't just make decisions about my life by myself. I should talk to other Christians. God doesn't work just through individuals. He works through groups of people. The third one is experience. And we do this really well. Um, uh, experience is kind of our forte. And in fact, although I can't, again, I can't go into much uh, on experience, um, uh, I would say that, and here's another one of my challenges, I think that we are wired to experience God in a more powerful way than peoples in all of history and in many other places are wired. And the reason is because we are so individualistic. 
I mean, we, do, we, we have a better sense of who we are as individuals than most peoples have in all of history. Do, did you realize that? We know we have it our way at Burger King. We, we know what we like. We, we know what kind of coffee we like. You know, we know that we like a mocha java with, you know, with vanilla, you know, whatever. We, we know what we like. Um, and because we have such a strong sense of individual identity, that means that when God meets us, when God stoops to us, he can meet us in a more intimate, a more personal, a, 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 more, a more individually centered way than, any, than, than most people in most of history have, have been even capable of being wired. That's something great. That means that God, God is willing and able to work with each one of us individually in ways that he really didn't work uh, with other individuals um, in the rest of, of history. The final one um, is reason. And, and uh, I'm, I'm basically spelling out a quadrilateral for you. It's called Wesley's Quadrilateral. It was his secret for knowing how to tell the difference between truth and error. Um, and if I could have uh, Wesley's Quadrilateral, I'll, 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 uh, I'll close. These four things help us know the difference between truth and error. Scripture, but don't read it alone. Don't go off somewhere. It's when people go off and read Scripture alone that cults are started. I'm, I'm sure that Dave Koresh read Scripture a lot, you know, by himself, and he came up with the right interpretation. Don't read Scripture by yourself. Read it with other Christians around you. And so we start with Scripture in discerning the difference between truth and error. Tradition has something to tell us. Um, there are lots of errors going on right now, at least I would consider them errors in the church, that, hey, if you just knew what had happened in Christianity before, you would know that that was an error. I can think of one uh, church in particular that is simply repeating uh, a heresy back from the, the 300s. Uh, and, and, and do they know that? I mean, somebody's probably told them by now. Uh, but but if, they had, if they'd been listening to, to church history, they might not have gone down that road. Um, so tradition, and, and, and tradition comes to us very tangibly today in the person of people in our church. Talk to older people. I mean, you know the story of, of Rehoboam in the Old Testament who, who decides whether he's going to listen to the old people or the young people. He goes with the young people and he loses half the kingdom. Um, older people sometimes do know what they're talking about. And I'm not just talking about age, I'm talking about older Christians, people who've been Christians for a little while. And that's a part of our tradition. Talk to, to other Christians. Talk to your pastor. Um, experience, like I said, we don't, I don't, I don't even need to tell you about experience because this is where we're at. Uh, in fact, I would say that most of what we call reading the Bible is actually us experiencing God and, and sometimes has nothing to do with what the Bible actually was saying, uh, but, but it's about the spirit that we experience when we read the Bible. The last one is reason, and I haven't talked about this um, at all, um, but, but basically reason is involved in all of these. Whether you realize it or not, reason um, is involved in, 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 in interpreting Scripture. When you interpret Scripture, you have to think, don't you? Don't you think when you interpret Scripture? Um, when, you, when you listen to tradition or when you try to figure out what church to go to, you have to do, use some reason to figure that out. Um, when you have an experience, you may have that experience, but when you go to interpret that experience, what was God telling me in that experience? You use reason to do it. And I had a quote from John Wesley that we don't have time for you to read, uh, where basically uh, he, he said what I just said, and that is that, that reason is involved in all these things, but it's a God-given reason. And 1 Corinthians says that there is a wisdom for Christians, but it's not a wisdom of this world. It's a heavenly wisdom. And so it's not just rationalism, uh, but it's God leading our thinking, God leading us. And so to close today, watch your diet. Uh, when you're searching the web... When you're listening to a preacher, 
when you're watching TV, when you're in a Christian bookstore, when you're at Barnes & Noble. There are all kinds of voices coming at you. Go to the Bible, but not alone, and realize that we're looking at what God is like in the Scripture. We don't want to imitate exactly what they did because God was relevant to them, and their situation's a lot different from mine. God wants to be relevant to us today, and I'm not trying to write out a bunch of stuff. I'm just saying that, that the Bible was meant to help us, not to be something that is a Procrustean bed that, that chops us off. Some people fit better than others. Um, but when we read Scripture, we should look for God's character. What does this passage tell me God is like? Tradition. Ask your elders. Ask them about this thing you've read on the web. I've read that this guy says that uh, Jonathan and David had a homosexual relationship. What do you think about that pastor? I guarantee your pastor is going to tell you, uh-uh, don't go to that website again. Um, so talk to your elders. Learn from the past. Experience. Make yourself available to God's Spirit. And again, I don't think we have a problem with that. Although it may be that sometimes we don't listen to God while we're worshiping. Maybe sometimes we get self-centered. Make sure that you're listening to God when you're experiencing Him. Make sure that you're open to what His Spirit would have you do. Pray about it. God has set up some places for us to experience Him. So, for example, the person who says, I don't go to church... You know, I can experience God at home. Well, that's not, I mean, that's possible, yes. But God has set aside Christians meeting together as a place um, for you to experience Him. And lastly, pray before you think. All of this involves thinking, but pray before you think. There's no reason why studying or thinking has to be divorced from God's Spirit. Pray before you think. And uh, let's just bow our heads and uh, close in prayer. Lord, the great thing about your Spirit is that it can help us to weigh and test the spirits. And uh, I've said a lot of things uh, this morning, and uh, I pray that your Holy Spirit would help each person um, to weigh uh, some of these things and to apply it to their life when they begin to hear these voices from outside, that when they read Scripture, that they wouldn't read Scripture alone, um, and that you would meet them when they do read Scripture that they would listen to others, that they would get interested in the history of, of, of your church and of the history of the way that you've dealt with people through the years and help them to listen to those around them um, who have sound advice and sound wisdom. Um, we pray that in their experiences that they would authentically experience you, that they would just not uh, assume that, that feelings they have or experiences they have are from you, but that they would genuinely be able to discern the difference between your spirit um, and, and emotion and, uh, and culture and things like that. And lastly, I pray that you would give them a keen ability to reason uh, out these things, a keen ability to process um, the, very vo the many voices that they're hearing. Uh, give them that, that skill of, of discerning and testing your spirits. And we just pray that you would take something uh, from these moments and apply it uh, to their life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.